Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. There's not much happening at the court this week, so we'll be back with a new episode next week. But I thought this week you might enjoy rehearing my interview with Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge John Nalbandian. But before we get into that interview, I want to clarify something that we talked about during trivia last week. When discussing it with several of our colleagues afterwards and some of our eagle-eared listeners, GC and I realized that Chief Justice John Roberts did not preside over the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. And the reason he didn't preside over that second impeachment trial was because it took place after Donald Trump had left office. And so instead, then-Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont, who was serving as the president pro tempore of the Senate at the time, presided over that trial instead. So with that, please stay tuned and enjoy my interview with Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge John Nalbandian. So what is going on with Ukraine? What is this deal with the border? How do you feel about school choice? These are the questions that come up to conservatives sitting at parties, at dinner, at family reunions. What do you say when these questions come up? I'm Mark Guiney, the host of the podcast for you, Heritage Explains, brought to you by all of your friends here at the Heritage Foundation. Through the creative use of stories, the knowledge of our super passionate experts, we bring you the most important policy issues of the day and break them down in a way that is understandable. So check out Heritage Explains wherever you get your podcasts. We're pleased to be joined today by Judge John Nalbandian, who currently serves on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Judge, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to be here today. So before we dive into some specifics about your career, I want to ask you kind of the 40,000-foot question. What made you want to become a lawyer? It's probably a similar answer that you'll get from others, but when I was in, um, when I was in college, um, I actually didn't. I actually didn't really want to be a lawyer. It wasn't something that was kind of on my on my radar. I was studying finance actually, and, and uh, I was uh, all set to actually. I wanted to be an investment banker, but I started taking some classes, political science classes, and um, became really interested, you know, in kind of legal theory and legal issues. And, uh, you know, at some point my senior year, I guess, or around between junior and senior year, I, I, I took the LSAT and thought maybe being a lawyer would be a, be a career that I would enjoy. I, I really wanted, I, I was really thinking about something that would kind of keep me engaged uh, in terms of kind of thinking and writing and, and doing a lot of that sure. kind of work. And, um, you know, I was, I was really focused on numbers. I guess early on in my life, I loved math and and and, and figuring out math problems and and that kind of thing. But um, and and there is crossover, honestly. Kind of the logical thinking is is very helpful for a lawyer, I thought, and, and for a judge. But right, you know, that's that's kind of how I got how I got to it. Um, there are no lawyers in my family, so I didn't really know what it was it was going to be like. But um, you know, it 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 kind of worked out in the end, I think. 
Absolutely. Now, Judge, I saw that your mother was born in a Japanese-American internment camp during World War II. And I was wondering, did she or your grandparents ever talk to you about their experiences there? And if so, did that have any impact on your decision to become a lawyer? It's, yeah, so my mom, so she was born in 1944, so she had no real memories of of camp. Uh, my grandmother used to tell stories or, or talk about about camp sometimes, kind of the way grandparents do. They just kind of talk about their lives and uh, sure. not not really in a formal sense, like, you know, here's what it was like, but I would catch snippets every now and then. And, and she was very... She was about the happiest person I've ever known. I mean, she didn't, mm. really didn't have a negative word to say about anything or anybody. So in some weird way, camp was, um, you know, she would just say it was just part of what she had gone through. And there were some, you know, memories. Obviously, my mother was born, at the, you know, during that time. And, and my aunt, right. um, my aunt, who's a little bit older, um, you know, she has a few memories. She was young, but, um, you know, I never really thought it, it didn't really have an impact on my kind of decision to be a lawyer, but, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those, one of those points in history. And obviously when we read the, the Korematsu case in law school, I, you know, it, right. I thought about it a little bit at that point. Now, speaking of, of law school, I know you attended the University of Virginia, and while you were there, you served as the managing editor of the Law Review. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your experience at UVA and your experience on the, the Law Review, and if, if you have any special memories of that time? Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, law school for me, I enjoyed law school. Um, I enjoyed the classes. Uh, my classmates were great. My professors were great. Virginia's got a reputation, I think, as being kind of a a more relaxed atmosphere, I guess, for, for law school, uh, compared to some of the other top, top places. Uh, and I think that was true. I mean, look, everybody's kind of a type A personality. So when you get all those people together, there's going to be some <laughs> kind of intensity, right. but yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> the time I remember, I do remember my time on the law review and I enjoyed that, but it was, it gets very hectic. You know, when you're a one L, when you're a first year law student and you mainly focused on class and by the time you get to your second year, you're focused on class, but you're focused on getting a job and working on a journal and getting involved in organizations. And I, it was a very, I remember a very hectic time and the, and the managing editor um, of, of our law review was mostly, I mean, a lot of it was really a business kind of running the, the business of the law review, which, kind of made sense given my background. And, uh, sure. so, um, yeah, that was, uh, it was, it was a challenging time, but it was fun. And, and obviously the, the, the people that I served with on the law review, they're, they're still my friends and, um, you know, we keep in touch a little bit, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I have, I have fond memories of law school. And as I get farther removed from law school, I think they get even better. <laughs> so sure <laughs> you forget you forget sure. about some of those uh the stressful times <laughs> sure sure now after law school you clerked for judge jerry smith on the fifth circuit 
And we recently had another Judge Smith clerk on not too long ago, Professor Todd Zawicki, and he regaled us with a few <laughs> Judge Smith stories. Uh, so I was wondering, uh, do you have any uh, Judge Smith stories uh, you'd like to share with us? Well, first of all, Todd. So Todd was a year ahead of me at UBA. And okay. uh, I actually I actually took over Todd's apartment in Houston. <laughs> I remember <laughs> Todd I talked to Todd and was it a said, nice it was, was it a nice not a great it was it was okay. It was okay. <laughs> I, I'll say that. And and we had this kind of uh, Renaissance furniture and it was uh you know, look, I was I had just gotten married. I my wife and I lived apart that first year, that year of my courtship. She was working in DC and I was in Houston. And I, um, you know, I would take uh, trips back to D.C., obviously, to see my wife. And, and also, I was looking for a job. Um, and Judge Smith, the one, I love Judge Smith. I, I just, he is my, you know, judicial hero and, and a person that I tried to emulate. He was very um, understanding about my situation. And um, he's, you know, he's got this libertarian streak and he was very permissive in in the sense of t time that I wanted to take off, um, you know, as long as you were kind of getting your work done. And, and I worked pretty hard, honestly, when I was, when I was in the office. And so I think he sure. understood that. And uh, I really appreciated that. And I appreciate that to this day. And some of the things that he did, you know, I know he's famous for not having a dress code and I don't really have one, frankly, in my office either. Um, other than other than we're, when when we're in court, obviously, but um, right, yeah, I mean that 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 experience was um, was great, and you know, I remember, I, I do remember one time we were uh, we sat and so you sit in New Orleans on the Fifth Circuit, and that's mm -hmm. a great a great city to to kind of be in, and um, I remember one we were there on Halloween night one night, and I. I remember the judge, actually, we used to stay at the Royal Sonesta Hotel on Bourbon Street. That was the traditional kind of Fifth Circuit hotel where the where the judges sure. used to stay. And then they kind of, some of them have moved out of there. But um, I remember the judge requested a room on Bourbon Street on Halloween. And we all gathered and <laughs> went out on the balcony to enjoy the festivities. And and that was um, that was a really fun time. But, yeah, I... I, I, I um, I really enjoyed that courtship and it really does, uh, it really does kind of, it, it, it has had some impact at least on the way that I, I try to run my chambers as well. Sure. Now, other than Judge Smith, are there any other mentors in your career who have helped kind of mold you as a lawyer and as a, as a judge uh, now? Um, you know, I, there have been a number of lawyers. I mean, obviously, I was in private practice from the time I clerked until the time I became a judge. So I've had a number of lawyers through the years that have helped me. And um, obviously, I wouldn't be where I am today without their help, partners at my old law firms. I, judge Katsis on the D.C. Circuit really helped me. He was it's it's hard to say he's I, I mean he's a mentor i mean he's only a few years older than i am so it's a little bit of a it's it's kind of odd but you know when you're a first year associate or a second year associate the the person who's a mid-level associate is kind of light years away from you in some ways sure. you know in terms of their <laughs> sure. experience and how they 
few things, but I learned a lot from Greg. You know, eventually he became the deputy White House counsel uh, in the Trump administration under Don McGahn and had a lot of influence, I think, in, you know, judicial nominations and picks. So that that became helpful for me um, down the road as well. But um, he's uh, I don't know if you've had him on, but but he's a fantastic writer and a great legal thinker a great legal mind. Um, and then, you know, when I moved to Taft, there have been, there were several partners that, that really kind of helped, help my career. And so, you know, that's kind of that, that road in terms of judges, sure. and, you know, obviously judge Smith, I think that, you know, any judge that you work for is going to have a huge impact, uh, on your life and, and how you approach legal problems. Um, and other than that, I just try to, you know, digest as much kind of legal writing and, and analysis as I can to try to learn what I can. Sure. Now, you mentioned at, you've been in private practice uh, since after you clerked until you took the bench. And I know you spent uh, several years working in Jones Day, Day in Washington, D.C., and then you eventually moved back to Kentucky and began practicing in Cincinnati. Uh, so what made you want to move back to Kentucky, begin practicing in Cincinnati, and how would your experiences uh, practicing in D.C. and Cincinnati, uh, how would those compare? Yeah, I mean, it was really a family decision. My wife and I were starting a family, and obviously my son was born in, um, I think it was in 99, it was April of 99, and we were in D.C., and we decided to um, move closer to family. You know, my wife was working at the Department of Justice at the time, and I was at Jones Day. You know, we had a we had a nice house in Arlington. I mean, it wasn't a big house, but it was uh, but it was a sure. great place. And and but we decided to move closer to family. And her family, she grew up here in Northern Kentucky, and so uh, we moved closer to her to her family. And and I think that was you know obviously that was a great decision. And my daughter was was born soon thereafter, and. So that was the decision, the, the practice. I worked at the Jones Day in D.C., and then I moved over to the Taft Law Firm here in, here in Cincinnati. You know, Taft was a smaller place, obviously a smaller shop than, than Jones Day. Taft has gotten much bigger, got much bigger over the time that I was there and, and even now since I've left. You know, the practice is, a, is similar in the sense that, you know, law firms kind of operate the same way. They're partners and associates, and and uh, right. you kind of staff cases the same way. The cases at Jones Day were bigger in in the sense that you know you have huge teams of lawyers, um, and and things that people say about other like regional firms. I guess you would say that you don't have those mega mega cases with twenty you know people on it. And, and, and I, I liked my experience at Taft. I mean, I, I did appellate practice. Um, that was what I had started doing at Jones Day. And I kind of kept that sure. practice going when I moved here and, you know, worked on a lot of really interesting cases. Um, I always tell people that, you know, Jones Day, you're working on cases that you probably read about in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and whatever here. Right. Um, maybe not as much of that, but certainly cases that are very important for the region um, a lot of important clients that are that are regional players, I guess, and, and some na- some nationally. I mean, Taft did a had a has a has a really good reputation as kind of a firm that kind of punched above its weight, I guess you would say. But um, I was sure. fortunate um, 
to, to land in the situation I did here. Excellent. Now, the Taft firm in Cincinnati, is that any uh, relation or have any connection with uh, President William Howard Taft? Yeah, so the Taft is Robert A. Taft, um, his son and senator from Ohio. Um, that's the Taft in the, in the name. But yeah, the Taft name in Cincinnati is a, is a well-known name, obviously, as, as people know. But um, President sure. Taft's um, birthplace is here in town, and then his sons and, and others went, went on to do great things in their own right. Excellent. Excellent. Now, I did want to ask you, one thing I noticed is that in 2007, Kentucky's governor appointed you to be a special justice of the Kentucky Supreme Court. Huh. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what a special justice is in Kentucky and what that experience was, was like? Yeah. Yeah. So it turned out to be not that big a deal, um, although it can be. Uh, it's, it's interesting. When, ju- when justices are recused on the Kentucky Supreme Court, at least back then, they don't – they replace them, obviously. So, so a judge can't sit on a case usually because right. they were a court of appeals judge and then are now recused because they you know, sat on the case or something. In a lot of states, in Ohio, for example, the chief justice would just appoint a, a different court of appeals judge to take the place of the Supreme Court justice. In Kentucky, the governor makes the appointment. And the tradition, I don't know whether it has to be this way, has been to put lawyers on instead wow. <laughs> of court of appeals judges. And so a guy named Andy Barr was the governor's council, and Andy is now a congressman um, representing the 6th District in Kentucky. But Andy called me and said, hey, can you, uh, can you be, be a special justice? We have a, we have a case, we have some cases that we have recusals on. Turned out that I didn't, um, it was at the cert stage, and so I was on several cases, but we ended up just denying cert. So there was nothing exciting, like I didn't mm. get to hear a case, you know, on the bench. I have known people, however, that have done that. They got on, they were appointed, they granted the case, and then they got to go and sit with the justices. And one of them, in one case, wrote an opinion um, because it was an area that he knew about (laughs) and the the justices were, were, were happy to have him do it. So it's an, it's a weird system. It's interesting. Um, It was a good experience for me just to kind of, talked to the chief justice a little bit, chief justice Lambert at the time. And, um, but yeah, that was it. And I, I, uh, I think I got a certificate out of it on, on I can <laughs> sitting somewhere that I can frame at some point, but yeah. Did you have to, uh, buy a, a judicial robe I, uh, for I, any of those activities? I, d- I did not. I did not have to do that. I did. Um, it's funny when I started on this court, I was, I didn't know anything about the row. Like, you know, I thought maybe they gave you the robe and they said, no, you, you, you have to buy that. I'm like, Oh, okay. Like how much, I don't even, how much are they? What are, who, where do I go? Is this a, turns out that the people that make church choir robes and graduation robes also make judicial robes. So that's, uh, now, and I'm kind of curious myself, did you have to go for a fitting? Did you have to be measured? Are they custom made? <laughs> how does that, that process I work? I think that they took some, yes, I think there were some, I don't, know that it was kind of bespoke but they did i think there were some there were some measurements that had to be taken to to kind of get that done but yeah that was that was funny it was the first sitting i ever had of course i didn't have any 
but it turned out the court had some kind of hand-me-downs laying around. So they, they uh. found me one that could fit me. And uh, there I was. That was my first case. The first thing I ever did was sat on an on bonk. I actually got on the court. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was, okay, here we go. I'm like, okay, good. Excellent. I did want to ask you about something else, Judge. I noticed that from 2010 to 2018, you were a board member of an organization called the State Justice Institute. Uh, can you tell us about you know, the State Justice Institute and what your experience was like uh, sure. on the board? Yeah, no, and I, I, I'm glad you asked me about that because I always love promoting the State Justice Institute. It's a board. It's a federal board. Um, it's it's mostly made up of state judges, state Supreme Court justices, and judges. So five or so. And then um, there are at-large members that are appointed, and you have to be confirmed by the Senate, actually. And the board basically makes grants of federal money to state court systems. Um, it's the only board, really, it's the only way that state courts get direct federal money, aside from some Department of Justice money. It's not a very big board, um, in, in terms of budget, I think our budget was $6 million or something, and that's with an M. And when you think about the size of the federal government, that's right. pretty small. In fact, I think it may be the smallest kind of agency board in the in the federal government. There's one that deals with, I think, marine animals that may be smaller, that, according to the director. Okay. But we would pick out priority investment areas, problems that were happening challenges that state court systems were finding that were having. For example, when I was there, a lot of state courts, and they still are, were struggling with um, litigants who were self-represented, didn't sure. have lawyers, uh, litigants who English was not their first language. And sometimes you combine the two of them and it becomes a real challenge. So we would pay, we would state courts would come with proposals and say, hey, we would like to set up an interpreter program uh, to help our limited English litigants, you know, uh, um, and so that we we can't have an interpreter in every courtroom, but we would like to set up a virtual program where somebody can can be in a clearinghouse and can help litigants all over the state or all over the country. And so they would say, we have you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars for this. Can you match? Will you make us a grant match that? And we would. And so what we would do is try then to leverage that. And the whole idea is that if a state, Minnesota, for example, had uh, some innovative programs on guardianships, like guardianships and elder law issues were very big. And if it becomes a model program or successful, we try to encourage other states that face similar problems to, you know, to, to model after that. So, yeah, we had a lot of interesting issues. You know, 95% of all litigation in this country takes place in state court. It's probably higher than that, actually. So most people, their kind of interaction with a court system is going to be with a state court and not a federal court. Um, so just it was sure. really important work, and I, I really enjoyed being on that board. I really did. Excellent. Now, I know a little bit earlier in the interview, you said that – Judge Smith, there were some things that he did in his chambers that you've adopted in your chambers. Uh, so I guess my question is, what are some of those things? And do you have any traditions that you're trying to establish with your own clerks? 
Well, we, t- we try to wear pink on Wednesday for sure as an homage to mean girls. But, um, <laughs> you know, other than that one, I'm serious. No, I, 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 I'll, I'll wear, I usually wear pink on Wednesday and the clerks have, will adopt that too. So, um, is but, uh, um, Mean Girls a favorite movie? <laughs> of yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a classic. You know, the one main thing that Judge Smith taught me, or, or his, maybe not a tradition, but just kind of as a work practice. I mean, he always had an open door, and you know, I mean, I, I think most judges do try to have. Look, there are times when you just need to kind of crank some work out and don't want to be disturbed. But for the most part, I, I try to be accessible uh, to my clerks the way that Judge Smith was. I mean, there was, you know, if I needed to walk in and talk to him about a problem, he was there and available. And I try to, I try to do that and encourage my clerks to do that. I think that's the way you kind of learn and, and figure legal problems out when you kind of talk through things. Um, and so I've tried to, I've definitely tried to continue that. Now, Judge, I have a final question for you. It's one we ask all of our guests on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Wow. That's, um, <laughs> there's a lot to pick from. I think I would um, – I, I, I suspect a lot of people take John Marshall or Oliver, Oliver Wendell Holmes or – Joseph Story, there are a lot of great names. I actually think I would want to talk to George Sutherland. Justice Sutherland, he was one of the four horsemen, which is kind of a, I suppose, a, a pejorative now, but fascinating guy. He had, was born in England and, and kind of grew up in Utah, served in, the, served in the House, served in the Senate. But I really, he, he wrote a, a lot of interesting opinions He's thought to be very conservative, but he wrote like Humphrey's executor, um, the zoning case, Village of Euclid, um, the Scottsboro case from Alabama, Scottsboro Boys case from Alabama, Powell versus Alabama. But also, you know, for for someone who's an originalist and, and is interested in originalism, uh, Justice Sutherland wrote a dissent in the Blaisdell case, the contract clause case, that is one of the early examples of kind of using original public meaning and kind of fixed meaning. So I, you know, I, I would love to sit down and talk to him a little bit. It's, it's always interesting when you talk about a historical conversation, because what you'd like to do is also tell them like, here's what's happened. Like, what do you think of, Sure, you know, admi- the administrative state, you know, the new, what happened after the new deal, delegation doctrine, commerce clause, you know, are you surprised right. at what happened? Are you shocked? Are you um, happy? Are you whatever? I did that. I just think that those right. would be, it would be fascinating to sit down with historical figures and see if, if what happened was kind of, oh, you know, this is what came to pass is what they thought or, or, or not. But yeah, Justice Sutherland, I think, would be an interesting one to sit down, an interesting person to sit down with. Excellent. Well, Judge Nalbandian, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show with us today. I've enjoyed our conversation and we'd love to have you back on the program again in the future. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. 
submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.